for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 603. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, before we jump in, will you, will you pray with me? Father, I am so, I'm so grateful for what we get to explore today, God. I'm so grateful that we get to hear the end of the story and have hope that can really move us forward. That over the last five months, as we've been exploring the chaos and complexity of Revelation and and hearing the, the calls to endure and have resilience and to keep going, all of it is headed somewhere. And I'm just, I'm so grateful, God, that you have promised us. You've, you've given us a picture and a preview of what's to come so that our hearts would, would leap and lurch toward that with hope. And so, Father, I pray today as we explore this section of Revelation 21 and 22 that, that you would be our helper that you would, you would ignite our imaginations with what's to come, and that from that, our hearts would be assured and comforted and anchored in hope. And so, Father, toward that end, would you unite your power with my weak words and help us to have hope today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, like I said in the, in the announcements, if I haven't met you, my name is Josh, and I serve as the lead pastor uh, here at ICON. And here at ICON, uh, we have a few different staff members. And as you uh, might imagine, one of the things that's important whenever you have a staff of any kind, whether it's of a church or of a business, uh, it's helpful to know how one another works together well. Uh, and there's all kinds of things to do to, in order to explore that. Um, we can use the Enneagram, which we do. But one of the things we also use is what's called the Working Genius Assessment. Anybody heard of that? Nobody. Man. Anybody? Yeah, Callie, you have, of course. Uh, Patrick Lencioni. Who's heard of him? Great. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of his thing. And uh, the Working Genius Assessment is basically this assessment that goes through the whole process of, of completing things, of taking something from an idea all the way to a finished task. And last year, as a staff, we took the Working Genius Assessment in order to see which areas each person scored highly on uh, and which areas people scored the lowest on. Uh, and for me, the things that I scored the highest on was uh, re really ideation and intuition. And so it's really easy for me to come up with new ideas and to have some level of intuition about how it's going to go and maybe how we need to implement it. 
The one, the one that I scored the absolute lowest on is what's called resiliency in the Working Genius Assessment. And re resiliency is the ability to see an idea all the way through. <laughs> to see it all the way from ideation to intuition to, I forgot all the other issues, all the way to resiliency, to finishing it, making sure that the task, the project actually gets completed. That's what I scored the absolute lowest on, which if that makes you nervous to hear your pastor say that, don't worry. We have other people on staff who are scoring high in resiliency, so we work together well. I, I struggle sometimes really bringing something to its desired end and really finishing projects. And uh, that's not just in work life, but that's actually some things that I see in my personal life as well. Uh, so about four months ago, uh, Courtney and my daughter Margo went on a little trip down to New Mexico where uh, Courtney is from. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I'm gonna spruce this place up a bit. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna paint without permission. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm gonna paint the hardest thing to paint, kitchen cabinets. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do that. And so uh, me and Milo, our son, were hanging out during the day and after I put him down to bed, I would go into the kitchen and I would be in there painting. And the first coat of paint that I put on was like this old paint that we had and it reeked, it was horrible. And so I let it dry, it looked really good, it wasn't completely finished, but it looked really good, but the, I could not get the smell out of the house. And so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go get a low odor paint and I'm just gonna cover it with that. And so. That's what I did. Went to Lowe's, got a low odor paint, and started painting the rest of the cabinets. But for some reason, that paint that I got was very high on primer. Uh, it might have just been primer, in fact. Um, and it just looked so chalky. Uh, and this is like four nights straight of work. And it's like all the little details. And Courtney got home, and she's like, thank you for the effort. That's really, that's really encouraging. Um, I'm glad that you thought of that. Um, but we'll have to redo that. And you know what, friends? I still gotta redo it. I still gotta redo it. It's, it looks fine. Uh, I'm keeping some of the blue paint tape on there so that when I get back to it, I don't have to do it, but that tape has been on there for so long that it might as well have come with the duplex at this point. Um, so I struggle to finish things, but another area, just to kind of continue to put myself on the chopping block that I struggle with is with working out. Um, so every now and then, uh, my wife and I will go through like old photos of the kids and kind of see what they were like when they were sweeter and quieter and um, easier. Uh, and it's really fun, but it's really funny because when we're doing that on my phone, going through Google Photos, every now and then we scroll back far enough to see a picture of me without a shirt on standing like this. And what that is, is me being so excited to work out. So excited to like get jacked and in shape. Uh, and so I tell Courtney, I'm like, hey, will you take a picture of me? I'm just gonna stand like this and I want you to take a picture of me so that like a few months from now, I can see how little I used to be, right? And there's like 15 of those photos, months on end, and they all look the same. In fact, we have some of the, I'm just joking, we don't, I'm just joking. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you or myself. Uh, so f finishing things is one of the chronic areas of development for, him, uh, for me, but, but friends, the best news that I can share with you today is that God does not suffer from that same problem. <laughs> Such wonderful news that God finishes things. His ideas for our redemption and his plan for our salvation are not just brilliant ideas that came into the mind of God but never really got implemented 
but things that were implemented. And today we see that they are things that will be finished. God finishes everything he starts. There are no loose ends in the plan of God. There are no well-meaning intentions that God just never gets around to. If God puts himself towards something, he sees it through to the end. And today, friends, we get the privilege of looking at exactly that, the end. How's this all going to work out? As we close our series in Revelation, we're going to look at where God will take this whole thing. We get a picture of of where we're headed as God's people. And friends, I just want to say, after five months of going through Revelation, it's a picture that we need. (laughs) I mean, this whole series, we've been exploring Revelation's call to resilience and endurance. But the final question to be answered is, is it worth it? Like, really? I know we might not really think that because we're Christians and we wouldn't voice that, but is it worth it? Is the Christian life worth it in the end? Not just the hope and joy that you have right now, but is there a finish line? Is there an end of the story that actually makes it worth it? Because I know for me, if the Christian life is just one long series of difficulties and trials that we have to endure, but with no fitting reward at the end, I'm not interested. We need a hope in order to actually answer the call to endure. We need to see what we are enduring toward. Endurance is the art of persisting through difficulty toward a specific end. And today we'll we'll see this specific end is undoubtedly worth all of the effort all of the trial, all of the resiliency to get to that finished picture, to stay faithful to Jesus and of not giving up. So what I wanna do today is look at these last two chapters of Revelation and just explore together really just the beauty and brilliance of God's end of the story. But before we get into all that, I'm gonna go through uh, 21 and 22. I do wanna very quickly give you two important principles that we need to have as we explore how the Bible ends and and how things eventually end. And and if we don't have these principles in place, I think we're gonna miss some of the beauty and brilliance of what we see in these chapters. And so these are just real quick, I want you to keep them in your mind and just have them as as principles and how you think about Revelation 21 and 22. The first principle is this. As we read Revelation 21 and 22, we have to recognize the persistent physical nature of what's described. So what what we see here in these chapters chapters is not an ethereal heaven that we will one day inhabit somewhere outside of the universe for all eternity on a cloud. Again, if, (laughs) if that's the intended end, I'm out. Okay, anybody else? Yes, that's not what I'm looking forward to. We need to see the physical nature of everything. As you read through these chapters, you see see buildings and rivers and trees. You hear physical people are there. and You even read of gemstones that decorate the temple or the city. This is all meant to show us, friends, that God's end of the story doesn't look like him just blowing up the earth like Armageddon, just and taking you out. No, it looks like him recreating and renewing the physical world. It's not that we fly away with him in spirit, but that God takes what is physical 
and renews it and doesn't destroy it. This end of the story is very physical, very material, very concrete. Christianity is the most earthy religion there is. Keeps our feet on the ground. And second, the principle to have in mind is that we have to recognize that this renewed heaven and earth, where it comes from, it comes down. The end of the story is not the crown jewel of human progress or human ingenuity. No, the, the, the end of the story is the crown jewel of God's gracious condescension. This assuring and comforting end of the story is not the result of us humans achieving something or going up to God, but rather it's the result of God bringing his presence and his brilliance down to the earth. In, in other words, the beauty and brilliance that we're going to explore here is all grace. I, I need to say that in today's world. It's not human progress that's going to get us to this renewed world. It's going to be God's condescension of grace. So keep those two principles in mind. Now, what do we actually see here? What do we see in Revelation 21 and 22? There's a lot that we could go through, but, but to walk through all of this, I, I want to I show you Three things that we don't see at the end of the story. Three things that are not there in these chapters. And then one thing that we do. So three things that aren't in God's finished redemption. And then one thing that is. Got it? Know where we're headed? Cool. You can talk back, you know. Okay. (laughs) Quiet as can be. First, in God's finished redemption, there are no tears. No tears. Let's slow down and revisit what we were just told in the scripture reading. Listen to this from verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What? A resolution. What an ending. And in this one verse holds so much of the hope that you want for your own life. No tears. No pain. I mean, listen to this. We we see that in the end, we will receive eternal respite and relief from every trial that we've endured. <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my mind is certainly prone to focus on the fact that, that God's finish, finished end won't have any mourning or crying or pain. But it's not just that we won't experience these things that rend our hearts today. It's not just that we won't cry anymore, but also that everything that has rended our heart here Everything that's happened here that's made us cry, that's made us mourn, that's made our shoulders sink, those things will be resolved and relieved. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I'm a dad of a a five-year-old and a two-year-old, which means I see a lot of tears. In fact, I see a lot of my own tears because I'm a dad of a five-year-old and a (laughs) two-year-old. But when it comes to my children's tears, uh, I I actually try to make an effort to wipe away their tears. 
And just this weekend, as that was happening, I, I noticed something about wiping away tears. So when I, when I wipe away the tears of my children, I almost always do that at the end of the crisis, at the end of the tantrum. If it's in the middle of an owie or a tantrum, I'll just hold them, right? I'll just hold them close. When someone is still sobbing, you don't make an effort to wipe away their tears. When someone sobs, the proper thing to do is just, just hold them in the moment. But as the pain is slowly resolved, as the pain is near its end, that's when you wipe away the tears. Wiping away tears is a way of comforting someone and also of pointing out that the pain has subsided. It's a way of identifying for someone the pain is over, you don't have to cry anymore. And that's what God is described as doing here. That is God wipes away our tears. He comforts us in every affliction that we've previously had. But he's also wiping away these tears because he knows there are no tears that will follow it. In the end, God wipes away tears only once. He doesn't have to repeat it like I do with my children. And that's because after he wipes away our tears, after he brings the the cathartic relief to every trial we've seen, he knows that there will be no tears to follow it. There will no longer be trials to press tears out of us. There will no longer be pain to emote through sadness and grief. God, God will wipe away every tear that you've cried in your life as to show you there's no need for that anymore. That won't happen here. It doesn't need to. Crying will be the most unnatural thing in the new heavens and new earth. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing to mourn. You mourn when you lose something. You won't lose anything. No pain. Nothing to make your shoulders sink. No tears, no pain. Because the things that have caused that will have passed away, right? That's what it says there, that these things, the former things, have passed away. Now, now the language in our translation makes it seem like these former things that caused pain and mourning and crying, that they simply just fade away from existence. But the Greek in it is actually much stronger. It literally reads, for the former things have fled away, (laughs) The things that used to cause pain, that used to make us cry, have not just faded into the, into the background. No, they have fled away. That as God comes down with his presence, bringing with him the renewal of all things, the former things that caused pain, they flee. There is no congruence between God's created, renewed world and the pain that causes our suffering. And so that pain runs away. <laughs> In God's finished story, there will be no tears. Second, in God's finished story, there will be no temple. So almost almost in passing, in verse 22 of chapter 21, John tells us that he didn't see a temple in this new city and renewed earth. Now to most of us, that's a detail we wouldn't notice, right? If we were to have this vision that John had, We would never even think to look for a temple, right? We're not trained to look for these things. But the idea of temple 
is deeply important in the biblical narrative. So throughout the scriptures, God dwells with his people through the means of a temple, or in the beginning, a tabernacle. And the temple was the geographic location of the manifest presence of God. That's where his presence was. Now, God is omnipresent, obviously, but God chose to make his presence uniquely felt and uniquely accessed through the means of a temple. But here, at the end of the story, there's no temple, and that's because there's no need for one. There's no need for one. Earlier in chapter one, we read why. It says this, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. No mediation. No no mediation through a temple. No requirement to make a pilgrimage to some specific location. Instead, life in the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with the presence of God, brimming with the presence of God, as easily accessible as the air we breathe right now. His presence will fill the new heavens and new earth. In fact, this is is proven and deepened even more in chapter 21. So in verses 9 through 21, John is given a vision of a new city coming down out of heaven, and there's a really strange scene where an angel tells the Apostle John the exact measurements of the city. Most of us just read by that, like, oh, this is just, like there's a weird thing in there about how a a human measurement is the same as an angel's measurement. That just makes most of us be like, turn the page there, don't know what that means. But we should probably use an angel's measurement, right? Should get back to that. Anyways, back to what I was saying. The angel describes to the Apostle John what this city is like. He says that the city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. Okay, so it sounds like the angel is describing a square. (laughs) But then he says its length and width and height are equal. Okay, now he's describing a cube. And then he shows John that this, this new city in the shape of a cube is made of pure gold. Now, again, most of us would read right past that or even skip it because it reads like nothing important, but it's deeply important. This new city is described as a golden cube. And there's another golden cube in scripture that this points to. So in the original temple that held God's presence in the Old Testament, there was what's called the Holy of Holies. And this is the place in the temple that the presence of God is housed, unabated, unmediated. He is there in his fullness in the Holy of Holies. And this section of the temple was so holy, so dense with the presence of God, that only the high priest could could access it, and him only once a year. And friends, this Holy of Holies, this inner sanctuary of of the temple, was a perfect cube overlaid with pure gold. (laughs) Do you see what's being communicated to us here? (laughs) That the new city, the new heavens and new earth that, that, that comes down is the holy of holies, the place where the presence of God is most uniquely manifested. (laughs) And so what all this means is that the presence of God at the end of the story is as easily accessible and present as the air we breathe right now. Today, we have to seek the presence of God, right? We often find ourselves waiting for a touch from his presence, a touch that will refresh us 
will strengthen us, will help us to continue to go on. We wait for a sense of his nearness. And this waiting so often looks like us crying out and waiting, crying out and waiting. And then every now and then we get wonderful foretaste of God's presence in this life and those moments often become the concrete moments around which the rest of our life is shaped, right? We have to wait, we have to seek, we have momentary moments of the presence of God. But here at the end of the story, there's no more waiting. There's no more seeking. There's no more dosage of the presence of God. He's simply there, fully and wonderfully. God's presence is there, immediately accessible, as easy to sense as the air that we breathe. At the end of this great story, in God's finished redemption, there will be no temple because there will be no need for one. God will be there in his fullness. And third, at the end of the story, there will be no trouble. No trouble. I mean, hear hear this good news from chapter 22. It says this. Then the angel who showed him the cube, he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So the water of life streaming through the middle of this city. And at a certain section of this river, the tree of life hanging over it, connecting on both sides. Now this tree of life is exactly what we were forced to not partake of in the beginning. When sin came into the world in Genesis 3, God says he pushed them out of the Garden of Eden so that they cannot access the tree of life. But here, we are given free access, unabated, unrestricted. We will have the water of life and the tree of life, but the tree of life is given for a specific purpose, right? Did you hear it? Its leaves were for the healing of the nations, which means this, relational conflict will be unthinkable. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Relational conflict will not exist. Every bit of conflict, whether at the national level or at the personal level, will be healed. (laughs) No room for divide. No more fallout with a friend. No more animosity, threatening intimacy. Instead, there's connection without confusion. Relationship without risk. Good Lord. We don't even know how to celebrate that because we don't know what that's like. (laughs) That's not even a category we have. We don't even have a good relationship with ourselves. (laughs) There's conflict there. What's it gonna be like when that's not there at all? (laughs) And all of this healing is, is accomplished with ease even. It says there will be nothing accursed. This is speaking of the original curse that God put over the world and mankind because of sin. And that original consequence of curse 
dealt out pain and difficulty, but here that curse is gone. No resistance in our efforts. <laughs> toil, whether that's creative toil or relation toil, will cease to exist. There will be nothing to keep us up at night, nothing to make us toss and turn. There will be no weird relational dynamics to navigate. Again, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Relational conflict will be healed. No remaining hurt to men. There will be no mental illness to wade through, no trauma to carry. At the end of the story, there will be no trouble. Nothing to weigh your heart down, nothing to concern you, nothing to keep you up at night. Now that's just three things that will not be there at the end. No tears, no temple, and no trouble. But what will be there? Well, there's, there's many things that we can look at, there's many things that we can look forward to, but let me just point out one. The face of God. Listen to this from verses three and four of what we just read. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We will see God's face. Now, the, the early church fathers had a term for this great day that they called the beatific vision. The beatific vision is the sight of God. When we see him face to face, and in this vision, friends, is everything that we've ever longed for. The beatific vision is the eternal kaleidoscope of God's beauty and majesty, every longing we've had. Every beauty we've appreciated has all been pointing toward this vision of the face of God. Every, every purple and blue sunrise you see over the Cascades pointing you toward this. Every red and yellow and orange sunset over the, over the Olympics pointing you toward this. The beatific vision, the face of God is the fulfillment of every longing for beauty you've ever had. It's all meant to direct your heart toward that. The fact that beauty exists for us to take in is meant to direct us toward a greater beauty that we will behold in the face of God. But even more, it is also the fulfillment, this beatific vision of seeing the face of God, it is also the fulfillment of every longing we've had to be noticed, to be seen, to be cared for. I mean, I'm struck by the imagery that's used. The face of God. What are faces for? To look at and to be looked at by. <laughs> to see and to be seen by. When you look at someone's face, you see them looking back. Faces look back. And here, friends, I believe this beatific vision is meant to excite our hearts for the beauty of God. And I also believe it will calm our hearts with the attentive face of God. Because here's the truth. Along with beauty that you've been longing for and searching for, this attentive stare of God 
Seeing you, noticing you, observing you is what you've been looking for your whole life. Someone to notice you, someone to see you, someone to attend to you. I mean, I, I always go back to whenever we had our first child, Margot, and when, when she was born, I remember being so surprised at how aware she was of everything in the room. <laughs> and that's what babies do. They cry, certainly, but then when they stop crying, they start taking in everything around them. Now, now why is that? Is it because they're just blown away by all the brightness? They just came out, came out of this like tiny dark womb and now they're like, whoa, this world's crazy. No, what's actually happening is that an infant comes out of the womb looking for someone looking for them. They're looking for someone to see them, to notice them, and to provide them the security that they are not alone. We are hardwired from the very beginning to be looking for someone who's looking at us. We come into this world searching for that face that will attend to us, that will care for us, and we spend the rest of our life doing the same thing. We're constantly looking to be seen. We're trying to find that person that will know us to our depths and not look away. Every relationship you've ever entered into and every relationship you've walked away from has had that at the core. You want someone to see you. We are made to see and we are made to be seen, to be noticed. For someone to see us where we're at. I read this last week, this is crazy. That there are two different types of tears that you cry. There are the, the tears of physical pain, and then there's the tears of affliction, of emotional pain. And researchers have found that within the tears of affliction, your emotional pain, there are a gargantuan amount of proteins within that tear that the other one doesn't have. You know why? So that those proteins will cause that tear to fall down your cheek slower so that someone will notice that you're crying. So that someone will see that, oh, this person's in need of some attention right now. Your physical body is hardwired to be noticed, to be seen. And friends, this, this beatific vision, the sight of the face of God will certainly excite our hearts with the kaleidoscope of God's beauty, but it will also fulfill every longing to be seen, seen noticed, and cared for. God, you, seeing God, seeing you, and smiling. That's a resolution. At the end of the story, the face of God will be there. <laughs> and because of that, all will be well. This is a future worth looking forward to. This is an end of the story worth being excited about, worth waiting for in endurance. And I wanna end the series here. We've gone through this for five months and I just wanna say, friend, if you will keep your mind here, if you keep your attention here on this hope, you can make it through. All of the calls to courage, all of the calls to resilience and endurance, you can answer those if you have this hope.
Every call for endurance can be obeyed when we see the temporary nature of it all and the purpose toward which it is all working. We can have hope. And I mean real hope. The hope of the Christian, all of this, is not a wish, it's not a dream, it's not a fantasy that won't pan out. It is a reality that God will bring. God will finish the story. And friends, to to close, we can be assured of that. We can know that God is going to take this thing to its intended end because of everything he's already done. Paul says that in Romans 8 when he talks about if God already gave over Jesus Christ, what makes you think he's going to get stingy now? And the same is true here. If God already gave over Jesus Christ for our salvation, if he's already given up the son over to death on the cross in order to save us, surely he's going to complete it. Surely he's going to let it, let it meet its finished end. So friends, just to close this series as we close Revelation, I hope that you'll have hope, bright hope. Bright hope that can encourage you and help you to walk the Christian life with endurance. In Seattle, as a faithful Christian, all because you know where the thing's headed and you believe that it's headed that way. Because if God gave his own son already, surely he will complete the task. How could he not finish the job? So we look forward with hope. And friends, we remember the cross of Jesus Christ that anchors that hope, that guarantees it. Let's take some time to to reflect and and think about that. Let's, Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to, even just thinking now of closing my Bible and it being the last page, we're so grateful that you're going to do that same thing. You're going to end everything that has troubled us, everything that has afflicted us everything that has caused mourning and pain. God, we praise you for that. And we just simply ask that. We ask two things. One, that your spirit would minister that hope to our hearts. It would become real. It would become the true story in our lives as it is. And that our hearts would be just enlivened to continue this path of the Christian walk, following Jesus faithfully in real life, because the end is totally worth it. So God, would you give us the hope of that, the assurance of that? And then second, would your kingdom come and would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Would you bring this end, God? The healing, the comfort, the resolution and recreation of it. God, our hearts long for it. We pray that you'd do it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.